It's great to be with you worshiping together. What a good time of worship. You guys worshiped good tonight at this PM service. Happy Labor Day weekend. Kudos to you for coming to church on Labor Day weekend. Yeah, extra special blessing coming your way. Do you know why we celebrate Labor Day? Some of you are like, no, I don't even care. I just care about my three-day weekend. Well, it, it was founded in 1894, and it was a celebration of the American workforce's accomplishments and, what it sounds like, labor. Up until that point in the late 1800s, uh, at the height of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, the average American worker worked about 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in order just to make a basic living. Even kids as young as six and seven years old would work in factories to help support their families. Some of you, your kids would be good for them to go spend a day working in a factory, right? They always complain about how hard they have it. You're like, okay, you're going to send, send you off to the coal mine for a week, and then you'll feel real good about your life. Uh, it's probably better for them to go to kindergarten, though. I think about our lives. We work probably about a third of our lives or more, and it's good to have work. Some of you have jobs that you really love in a career you really enjoy and you get a lot out of it. And if that's you, like, like our church staff, you obviously love your life. And then uh, others of you, you work a job that you don't necessarily love. Maybe you don't even like your job, but you do it because you got to provide for your family and you got to take care of your kids. And I just want you to know that if you work a job you don't really love, I want you to hear from me. That's a very noble and godly thing to keep working hard at something that you don't even necessarily love, but you do it for the people you love. Amen? And so I just want to encourage you in that. That's a godly thing, and God will bless you for that. But I would just say this. If you're going to work, you want to get the full return on your labor, don't you? You don't want to work hours this week and then find out a computing error caused you to get paid for less hours than you deserve. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Or if you were, you know, literally had money in your pocket and there was a hole and, and you were losing money out your pocket. That would be so irritating. Nothing is more frustrating than losing money you worked for, right? On the other hand... Probably nothing more fun than investing money you earned and seeing it multiply and grow even more. That's incredible to experience that. Well, what if I told you that a lot of Christians lose what they could have through mismanagement? It's possible as a Christian, based on the choices that you make, to either lose out on the potential of what you could have or multiply what God has given you into even more based on your choices. So tonight I want to talk about multiplying your labor, multiplying your labor. We're going to go to Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, go to Luke chapter 9. It will also be up on the screen here. It says this starting in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to him and said, Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. 
Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this passage. First thing I want to point out is that everywhere Jesus went, he drew a large crowd. And I like to point that out because we live in a day and age when there are Christians, and I've even met some pastors, who are skeptical about churches that have, let's say, a large crowd. Now, the average church in America is about 80 to 150 people in size. A lot of you grew up in a church that was about that size, a little smaller. And so a church like our church is considered really large. Thousands of people, multiple campuses, online, in person, it's kind of large. There are groups of people that look at that with a skeptical, critical attitude, almost like, well, if there's a lot of people coming, you must be doing something wrong. <laughs> you must be cheating up in there. I don't know what you're doing. If you all giving away free beer or something or... But there's no way you're teaching the truth. Otherwise, that many people wouldn't be coming. But that's not biblical. We see everywhere Jesus went, he drew large crowds. And this passage says he welcomed them. He didn't say, go home. There's too many people here. I don't want to have a mega church. He said, come on, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you. So that's, that's something that's important to keep in mind. There's a reason that our church continues to grow. It's because we make a big deal about Jesus. And Jesus is attractive. We actually have a value for our teams. Our value is called keep it attractive, make it attractive, make it attractive. And what does that mean? It means that when we have gatherings, like whether it's a worship night or a church service or a life group or celebrate recovery, that as leaders, we want to make it attractive. We want to make the environment welcoming and warm and exciting and fun. Because if you can help it, church is better when it's fun. Amen. It's better when it's fun than when it's boring. Not a trick question. Yes. On the other hand, there's a dual meaning to that. And by make it attractive, what we mean is remember to represent Jesus well. Represent Jesus well. Because whenever people get turned off by Christians, it's usually because we didn't represent Jesus well. And, and we've all had those moments where we're like, Ugh, I probably didn't represent Jesus that well. That wasn't really a WWJD moment. It was more like, what would Ryan do? And the answer is the wrong thing. That's what Ryan did. And, and so if we represent Jesus well, we're going to find that it attracts people. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to choose to follow him and serve him. But you see what he said in John is, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people unto myself. And so when we represent him well, when we lift up his name and make a big deal about Jesus, it draws people. So why does this church grow? Not because of a pastor, not because of a program. Jesus is the main attraction here. So there's this huge crowd that comes out, and the Bible says there are about 5,000 men present. But in this day... Historians tell us they didn't really count everyone. They didn't count women and children. That's just the way they, they counted. They counted the men. Don't send me an email. I know it's not politically correct. This is what they did. They counted the men. So historically, theologians say there was probably actually 15 to maybe even 25 
thousand people that were present. So for frame of reference, the average attendance at Chase Field for a Diamondbacks game is about 25,000 people. So imagine Jesus in this crowd with a baseball stadium full of people hearing him teach. Hearing, and they're there all day, the Bible says, listening to him teach. They've got no food and no shelter, and the day has gone on for a, qu- a while now, and the people are starting to get hungry. Anyone here tonight, you say, I don't really do so well when I get hungry. Do any of you get cranky when you're hungry? Okay, anyone beside me? I get, I get hangry. Anybody else? Amy's not like this. She's more sanctified than me. Amy's like, yeah, I'm hungry. And, and what that means is any time in the next four hours I could eat. But she's fine. Otherwise. Like I all of a sudden realize I'm hungry and then panic sets in. And I've got to eat right now. It, it's real dangerous if you're hungry and you're at a restaurant and there's a wait. You know, you get to the restaurant, you can smell the food, which just amplifies your hunger. And now you just get mad at everyone. Like, I found myself like, why is this hostess going so slow? You know, sit people faster. I look around the other people waiting. I get mad at them. I'm like, what are you doing here? Why did you come with such a big group? What's wrong with you? You're selfish. Start eyeballing the people eating. You know, I'm like, are you done? Uh, Can I get you anything else? You're just sitting there. No. Okay, we're all waiting. I'll I'll just sit here and stare at you until you leave. Like, I'm hangry. This, This crowd here, they're listening to Jesus teach. And they're getting hungry. And, and I think Peter specifically is someone that I relate to easily. Uh, and Peter, you know, he's starting to worry. He's getting hungry. I heard one pastor, Robert Morris, talk about it like this. Uh, I just kind of imagine that scene playing out. And I just imagine, you know, Jesus is teaching. There's a huge crowd. The day's gone by. It's been a long day. I stopped listening hours ago. You know, I'm just thinking, when are we going to eat? Peter probably grabs the guys, pulls them over to the side. Guys, what are we going to do? And, you know, James is like, what do you mean? I mean, I'm hungry. Well, well, Jesus is still teaching. I know he's still teaching, but I'm hungry. What are we going to do? And Peter says, I know. I got it. We'll tell him the people are hungry. <laughs> yeah, because Jesus is always telling us we should care more about people. So once he knows the people are hungry, he'll send us home and we'll get something to eat. And they probably elected Peter to talk to Jesus since Peter was the oldest. He was kind of the leader of the group. So the scripture infers that Peter actually kind of interrupted Jesus while he was in the middle of his sermon. You can just see, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me. Wow, this is great. This, uh, we were just talking over there actually about how much we've been enjoying this whole series of sermons you've been teaching today. But you know, Lord, uh, there's a lot of people here and it's getting late. The sun is going down and uh, the people are hungry, Lord. The people are hungry. Uh, We don't have anything to feed them, so... We were thinking maybe you could wrap it up. And Jesus said, you feed them. And Peter's like, what? You feed them. So Peter goes back to the guys. "Uh, How'd it go? (sighs) Not good. (laughs) What did he say? Uh, He said, you feed them. What are we supposed to feed them? I don't know. I don't know. Like, you know how it is. Jesus says stuff all the time. I don't know what he means. He just said, you feed them. And right about then, this boy walks by with a a little Long John Silver's combo meal. And Peter's like, yoink, I'll take that. Uh, So here the Bible says he got two two fish, five loaves of bread. And so he's like, I don't know. I'll I'll see what we... So he goes back over to Jesus. Oh, Lord, excuse me. Um, Yeah, there was a boy who just really generously donated his lunch (laughs) to the ministry. And there's not enough for everyone. But I was thinking, you know, maybe we could split it. 
they don't need to know. Uh, and uh, Jesus says, Peter, why don't you go have everyone sit down in groups of 50? And he's like, okay. Uh, so he goes back, all right, everyone, we're going to need you to get together, ga- gather together in groups of 50. And you know, this probably took a minute. It's hard to get people to do anything, let alone a big group of people. Like, we have a hard enough time at church just getting you all to come in the right doors and leave. <laughs> without killing each other, you know. Like, All right, get in a group of 50, uh, please. Like, yeah, yeah, get in the other, like, ma'am, please go to this group. I don't like my group. Just sit down in your group, Karen. Just get, just sit down. So then he goes back, like, all right, Lord, they're in, they're in the groups of 50. And uh, so Jesus says, you know, give me that food. Peter gives him the food. Jesus takes it, and it said, you know, he held, he held it up to the Father, and he said, Lord, bless it. He blessed the food, and he put it back in Peter's hands, and Peter gets it, and Jesus says, now give it away. And you know Peter was probably like, but are you done praying for it? He said, yeah, Lord. Uh, he said, yeah, Peter, I blessed it. Now give it away. Give, give it all away? And Jesus said, yeah, I blessed it. Give it away. So Peter takes it, and you know he goes up to the first guy, and he said, take just a little piece. <laughs> Take a little piece. Take a, I said a little piece, right? And he's probably starting to sweat and he's thinking like, man, there's not going to be anything left. And Jesus is just teaching me a lesson for talking too much. I'm not going to get anything to eat. And then as he's giving it away before his eyes, miraculously, it grows. It multiplies. And he goes, you can have some more. Take some more. You can have some more. And the Bible says he fed everyone. Everyone got to eat. They got all they want, and they had leftovers, 12 baskets full of leftovers. This is the only miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Think about that. The miracle of multiplication where God provides for his people through our faith and his multiplying power. There's something about that that the Lord wanted to make sure that we got. And I wanted you to understand tonight that there is a way that you can experience this power, this miracle of multiplication in your own life now. That God can work through you to provide for you and bless other people. Most of you are going to get up, you're going to go to work this week, or you're going to put your energy into raising kids or building a business. You're going to do the work either way. So if you're going to do the work, don't you want to have your labor be multiplied? I I think you want to have it be multiplied. Before Peter started giving away this food, before he saw it multiply before his eyes, what did he do? Because we got to know what he did so that we can follow that same pattern. What he did is he gave the food to Jesus. Before it multiplied, he put it in Jesus' hands. Because Jesus is the one who has the power to meet our need. He's the one that has the ability and the answers to our problems. Amen? So what Peter did when he gave Jesus the food was he honored Jesus by recognizing him as the answer to their problem. Before God can bless you and your household and your finances, you've got to put it all in his hands. It's the same thing today. In Proverbs 3.9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, so this is agrarian language. It's farming language. So it's talking about sowing and 
crops and first fruits and produce and barns and vats. You probably don't have vats of wine in your house. If you do, you have a drinking problem. <laughs> so what it's talking about here is, is you're bringing God the first fruits. That's the first portion of your wealth. And it's saying that when we're talking about barns and, and vats. It's saying you're always going to be blessed and have enough. So what it looks like for us is you're probably not harvesting crops, but your wealth comes to you in the form of most of you paychecks, some kind of check. And when you get that paycheck, that's your version of uh, Peter's Long John Silver's combo meal. You get, that, you get that sustenance, that resource. When you're, like, when you're getting paid, you're like Peter with that kid's lunch. And you have a choice in that moment. You can keep it and consume it, or you can bring it to Jesus and put it in his hands. Now, not every Christian does that. And so I want you to understand this first point. God won't bless what you don't give him. God won't bless what you don't give him. It's after Jesus, uh, Peter gave the food to Jesus that Jesus blessed it. And that's what allowed it to be multiplied. So if you want your life to be blessed, if you want your finances to be blessed, it starts with putting everything in God's hands. How do you do that? There's a very practical system that God established for us to do this. And it's called tithing. Tithing. It's a great system. Instead of us having to literally give God all of our money, he established this system called tithing. Tithe means one-tenth, 10%. People use that word wrong all the time. They'll be like, yeah, I, I tithe, but not 10%. Well, then it's literally not a tithe. Words mean things. It's not a tithe unless it's 10%. So you give God this tithe, and this, this number is supernatural and symbolic in Scripture. One-tenth, that in God's economy represents the whole amount. It's a symbolic amount. One-twentieth? No. One-tenth is the number. Like, it's got to be God's way. So one-tenth represents the whole amount. When it comes to money, it's a tithe. There's another place in the Old Testament where you see it in kind of a, a, a scary negative light. God wanted to punish this one group of people. And instead of punishing everyone, he punished one-tenth of the people to represent his anger towards the group. Okay, so you see it play out multiple times. One-tenth represents the whole. So when you bring God your tithe, the first 10% of your paycheck, it is symbolic of you putting your whole resource, all your money, all that you have in his hands. That's how you do it. And when you bring it to God, then he blesses it. And so making it practical, right? If you get like a $1,000 paycheck, the first $100, that's your tithe, that's your first fruits. It's not the last $100 after you've paid all your bills, if, you've ha if you have something left over. That's called leftovers. <laughs> leftovers are great. Heat those things up, you know, eat them the next day. Pasta's better the next day. I love leftovers. God doesn't take leftovers. Some people, they think about giving to God like giving him leftovers. Like, oh, yeah, I found some change in the couch cushions. Here you go, God. He doesn't take leftovers. He's not honored by leftovers. He's honored by the first fruits, the best portion, which is the first portion. So it's the first hundred that leaves my hand out of a thousand. It's the first thousand out of ten thousand. It's the first ten thousand out of a hundred thousand. You can do the math. It's ten percent. 
It's God's portion. And when you give it to him, you're putting all your resources in his hands symbolically and saying, Lord, everything I have, I put in your hands. Now, I'm about to get real up in here. (laughs) If you're new to Generation Church, you'll find that I can be pretty direct at times, more than maybe some of the pastors that you're used to. But it's coming from a place of love. Statistically speaking, in most churches, there's a good chunk of people who don't tithe. And then there's another big chunk of people who do tithe. So why, why would so many people not do it? One, maybe they don't understand it. That's a pretty common reason. Uh, especially because a lot of pastors don't really talk about money that much. And, and that's true. There's reasons why they don't. Sometimes it's because they, they feel you know, uncomfortable talking about money. They feel uncomfortable making other people uncomfortable. Uh, another reason some pastors don't talk about money is they don't want to be misunderstood and give the wrong impression. They don't want people to think they only care about money. And so what happens is the people end up suffering because they don't get good teaching. This is such an important issue that you have to understand it. Another reason that a lot of Christians don't tithe, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll just sum it up as this. They don't want to. They choose not to. And I've had other sermons where I go through all the reasons and I address them and, and kind of give the, you know, the kind of the guidance for each, each of those excuses. But they all really boil down to this. I don't want to. I've got a reason. I've got an excuse. And I'll just give you the spoiler. There is no good excuse. There's no good reason not to tithe. Uh, And I've addressed all the possible excuses in other messages. But here's the deal, okay? It's about to get intense. It's about to get intense. Everyone buckle up. Uh, All right. So in any given church, including this church, you got a lot of people who tithe and their finances are blessed. And then you got a lot of people who don't tithe and their finances are cursed. People ask me oftentimes, so Pastor Ryan, if I don't tithe, that means my finances are cursed? And the answer is yes. And I want you to understand this. It's not language that I came up with. It's not like a threat. It's just reality. And I even thought to add this explanation. There are different types of curses in Scripture. There's an active curse, like you see God cursed the serpent in the garden, and punish the serpent. And then there's a passive curse. And that's basically that you're just suffering from the effects of the curse of sin. What happens is that anytime you submit your life to Jesus as Lord, you break free from the curse of sin. Okay? So I want to help you understand this. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And not by works. Amen? Amen. So, yeah, I know. That's like, you just start talking about getting saved by grace. I'm excited. Where saved by grace has nothing to do with giving. As you submit your life to Jesus and you honor him as your Lord and King, your life is set free from the curse of sin. So the problem is this, and this is where it gets confusing to people. It's only as you submit all the areas of your life to Jesus that those areas are set free from the curse of sin. They come out from under the curse of sin, and they come under the covering of protection of God's blessing. So here's why why I want you to understand this. There are Christians who are saved 
and going to heaven and born again with their name written in the book of life. And no one can take that away from them. But their finances are still cursed. Because they have not yet surrendered their finances to God. They've been holding it back and like, God, I don't really want you talking to me about money stuff. And I'll give you another example. You could be saved and born again and going to heaven. But if you're still sleeping with your girlfriend and watching porn, your sex life is cursed. It's still being dominated by the curse of sin. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean you're not his child. It just means your sex life is still being ruled over by the curse of sin because you have not submitted it to God. In the same way with finances, you could be saved, but have, but have your finances still be affected by the curse of sin because you haven't submitted them to God. So how do, you, how do you get your finances out from under the curse, under the covering of God's blessing and protection? It happens when you tithe. It happens when you bring your tithe to God. And what's beautiful is when you bring it to God, he blesses it, and then he multiplies it. And it goes further than it would without his blessing. And that doesn't mean that as you bring your finances to God, that he's going to give everybody Lambos and Gucci purses and mansions. That's not what this is about. That's like a weird prosperity gospel. God does not promise everyone that they're going to be rich and have just crazy, stupid wealth. That's not what it's about. He says, but he, he does say he's going to bless you and he's going to take care of all your needs and then some. I'll show you this in Scripture so you're like, man, this is pretty intense. Let me show you what the Bible says. Malachi chapter 3, God says, Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? I think there's a lot of Christians today that would be like, how are we robbing God? God says, in your tithes and contributions or offerings. That's your tithe, the first 10%, and your offerings are any other giving that you give to God. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So he's like, your finances are cursed because you're robbing me. But here's how you can be free of that. Bring the tithe to me the way that you're supposed to, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test. In other words, God is saying, you can trust me when I say this. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. There's that same pattern, that same theme. You put it in God's hands. You bring him your tithe, your first fruits, the best portion, the first portion. He blesses it, and he takes care of you until there is no more need. So in every church today across America, statistically speaking, there are Christians who are saved but who are also robbing God. That's what the Bible says. When you don't tithe, you are robbing God because that tithe belongs to him whether you give it to him or not. The first 10% is the tithe and it does belong to God whether you give it to him or not. So if you keep it, you've got God's tithe in your bank account and it doesn't belong there. It belongs in God's house. This passage says, you, you know, you bring the tithe to God's house. He says that there would be food in my house. In the day, back in the day, there was a temple. In our modern context, we have churches all over the place. And so your tithe goes to your local church. He said, bring the full tithe to my house. That means the full 10% 
goes to your church. You don't break it up and send you know, a little bit to your church and a little bit to Caleb and a little bit to the influencers you like on social media and a little bit to the televangelist. If you want to give extra offerings to other people and other ministries, you can do That's fine. That's generous. But your whole tithe goes to your church because it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me, so I can't divvy it up the way I want to. That would be me trying to control something that actually belongs to God. And here's what he says. He's like, test me in this because he wants, he wants us to have faith and reassurance. He's like, go ahead, make my day. Test me and see if I won't pour out blessing on you until there is no more need. It's the same theme. It's a pattern that gets repeated before the law, in the law, in the prophets, in the wisdom literature like Proverbs, in the Gospels, and in the New Testament epistles. Throughout the entire Bible, God says, you bring me the first portion, you put it in my hand, I'm going to bless it, and I'm going to multiply it, and I'm going to take care of all your needs. Amen. Some people say, I can't afford to. I can't afford to tithe. And I just want you to understand this, you'll never be able to afford it until you do it. Amen. People say, well, I'm already tight on money, I don't know how I'm supposed to give God 10%. Uh, the problem is, you're still thinking about money backwards. You're thinking about all your bills and all your obligations, and then you're thinking there's not going to be anything left for God. That's not how it works. God comes first. He comes off the top. That means you can always afford to tithe. Whether you make $1,000 a year or $100,000 a year or a million dollars a year, you can always afford to tithe because it's the first thing you do. It's the first thing you do. When, when you say, I can't afford to, I'm broke, you got to understand, you are broke. Your finances are broken if God isn't first in your finances. Until God is first, nothing else is going to be in the right order. It's like that dude who's too proud to use the directions and tries to put an Ikea dresser together on his own. And you start out in the middle and you realize I'm never going to be able to make this work because you didn't follow the directions. You did it in the wrong order, bro. You got to do it right from the get-go. The first thing that happens is God comes first. The first 10% is his. Let him bless it, but he can't bless it if you don't put it in his hands. Jesus, he told the disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50, in groups of 50. There's a couple reasons he did this. First, he wanted them to be organized so that they could all receive. Second, it was part of the Jewish tradition to say grace after you eat. We say grace usually before we eat, when we sit down as a family. It's really cute. My little daughter right now, she loves to pray. I don't even think she knows what we're doing, but we'll hold hands, and she'll close her eyes, and she'll be like, like, I don't know if she's praying in tongues or what, but she likes it. But in Jewish culture, they pray after they eat, which I think is actually pretty smart. Because there's been sometimes I've said grace for food, and then it turned out to not be that good. I think it makes sense. You say thanks after you eat, and then you know how thankful you should be, right? And in Jewish culture, the way that they said grace after meals, that's what it's called, grace after meals, it was different depending on how many people were in the group. And so when he put them in groups of 50, he was setting them up to be grateful and be prepared to receive. Think about this. He was putting them in a posture to receive and a posture to be grateful before he even did the miracle. Think about how that applies to our lives today. God puts you in a posture to receive with a grateful heart through the practice of tithing. 
It's as you bring your tithe to God, it reminds you where those resources came from in the first place, and it fills your heart with gratitude. And it sets you up to be ready for God's blessing in your life, even before you see the blessing. There is faith involved in this process. It's a bold thing. So Jesus puts this crowd in a posture to receive before the miracle takes place. It's the same thing Jesus does with us today through the practice of tithing. And then what Jesus said to Peter was, give me what you have. Give me that food. Peter gave it to Jesus. But imagine what would have happened if Peter got that food and he thought, man, there's not really enough to go around, and I'm hungry, so someone's got to eat, you know, maybe it should be me, and he started eating the food, right, he's over in the corner eating the food, like, I gotta get, I gotta get something to eat. What if he ate the food instead of giving it to Jesus? It would have never been multiplied. You'd have the story of the 5,000 hangry people. (laughs) It'd be so sad. What is sad is that a lot of Christians actually do this today. The Bible talks about sowing and reaping, but a lot of Christians, rather than sow their seed, they eat it. So my caution to you is don't eat your seed. The Bible uses farming terminology, talks about, you know, farmers sowing, planting, and harvesting. Think about if you were a hungry farmer, just starving, you'd be tempted maybe in that moment to, to eat your seed and satisfy your hunger, but you would know It's better for me to plant this seed so that it can grow and multiply a thousand, ten thousand times over and feed my whole family throughout the whole whole winter. Well, this is what kind of plays out with us in our finances. When you get paid, you look at that that tithe, that first 10%, and you you got it in your hand or you're thinking about it. You see the numbers in your bank account. And in that moment, you're going to be tempted. You're going to think, I could use that tithe. For other things, I could pay T-Mobile with that tithe. I could go to Applebee's, have a date night. I could pay that, that guy that's been calling me and saying I owe him money. I could, I could use that tithe. It's the temptation to eat your seed rather than bringing it to God and planting it into the kingdom of God where it can be multiplied. But a lot of people, they, man, I got to pay that Netflix bill. I got I to use that money for my car payment. And what happens is you just ate your seed. And you just robbed yourself of the opportunity to see God multiply your resources supernaturally. I'll show you in 2 Corinthians 9. It says this. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. This whole passage is about giving. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. But God, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. It's like the same pattern again. As the scriptures say, it's quoting the Old Testament, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. So I'm thankful that Peter brought his combo meal to Jesus to get it multiplied. So it could be blessed and multiplied. But, but, but watch what happens. Jesus blessed it. But then he put it back in the disciples' hands. And it didn't multiply in Jesus' hands. 
It was blessed in Jesus' hands. It multiplied in the disciples' hands. When they gave it away, it's as they gave it away that it multiplied. And the Bible says everyone had plenty to eat and there was even leftovers. And I want you to understand this last point. The more you give, the more there is. It's as they gave it away that it multiplied. And that's what happens when we first give to God, we find that the power of multiplication takes place and is poured out in our lives. It's like planting seeds. When you think about planting and seeds growing into crops, this isn't like buying a lottery ticket. Think, you know, some of you may have bought lottery tickets over the year. I don't recommend it. You buy a lottery ticket, you, know, you scratch it off, and eh, low odds of it ever working. But in the kingdom of God, when you invest in the kingdom of God, there is a 100% chance that what you give to God is going to be multiplied. 100%. Why do you think God said, test me in this? I've been a pastor for 10 years, never met one person in all those years who was like, it didn't work for me, God didn't come through, guess he doesn't keep his word. Never seen it. What I have seen is people give to God and he blesses them. And that's why this isn't just a cute saying, it's true. When you have that 90% with God's blessing, it goes way further than 100% without God's blessing. When, you've been, when your finances have been blessed by God, you tithe and then they've been blessed, right? And you're going to find things go further and you just make better choices and, and God protects you and, and he blesses you. It just goes further. And then you're going to find as you are more generous, you're going to start living more generously, giving to other people. And God's going to start to bless you with more because God gives more to people who know what to do with it. This whole, this whole concept about being blessed in your finances there have been people who have twisted it and they've taken it out of context and they've made it all about getting rich and getting more stuff. And they kind of, they kind of sell this message like, you know, if you give to God, then he's going to give you 10 times what you gave to him and you're going to have Porsches and mansions and Rolexes. And there's nothing wrong with all those nice things. If you have that nice stuff, more power to you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin. But the goal of having blessed finances isn't just to have your bank account grow and grow and grow. That's not the promise. The promise isn't that you'll become stupid rich. The promise is that you'll be blessed and that you'll always have what you need and more so that you can always be generous. That passage in 2 Corinthians, it promised that God would produce a great harvest of generosity in you. In other words, it starts with tithing. Then you're going to find you start giving offerings to God above and beyond your tithe. Then you're going to see, you're going to start becoming more generous to other people. That's what happened in my life. I'm not saying it'll happen in your life, but just for me, I started tithing and it was kind of hard for me. And then God led me to start giving offerings and I started giving above my tithe and that was kind of hard for me. And then next thing I knew, God was just developing generosity in me. And I, and I started tipping more and I started giving bigger presents to family members. And I started telling people like, oh, don't worry about it, I got it. Whereas I never did that before. And it, I don't know how that happened except for this is just what God said he would do. He gives more to people who know what to do with it. And I love this passage we read. It said, God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give under compulsion. And so here's what's going on tonight. I'm being very direct because this is such an important issue, you can't beat around the bush. You need clarity. You need to know, if I'm not tithing, I'm robbing God. 
you need to know if I'm not tithing, my finances are not going to be blessed by God. But that doesn't mean I want anyone to come out of here and become a giver out of guilt or out of manipulation. I'm trying to be clear, but I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone. Man, if you don't ever do this, God still loves you. If you don't ever tithe to God, you're still his child. But what I want to do is be clear and set you up so that hopefully you can open your heart up to the Holy Spirit and let God speak to you. When I, when I was first starting to tithe, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you've never really felt this before, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not a guilt trip. That's what comes from the devil. The devil condemns us. And he says, like, you're stupid. You'll never be good enough. The Holy Spirit, his conviction is uplifting. He says, you can do better. This is really what I want for you. You need to trust me. And, and it wasn't that it was easy, but I just had, had this growing sense, like, I really need to do this. I know it's the right thing to do. I want to do it. And I started to tithe, and it wasn't easy, but, but I knew it's what God was leading me to do. If, if that's you today, if you come out of this service, I don't want you to be like, oh, Pastor Ryan, talk to me. <laughs> said I was robbing God. <sighs> fine, fine, get off my case. That's not what we want. I want you to come out of here and go, man, I'm going to do this. No matter what it takes, I'm going to do this. And I believe that God's going to develop a great harvest of generosity in me as he blesses people through me. Amen. So I'm going to close with this testimony. And hopefully this will encourage some of you because I think that God is working on people's hearts today. As I preach a message like this, I can always tell who already tithes because they're sitting there the whole time like, yeah, yeah. And then there's other people that are there like, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> so I just pray like as you leave here this week, you just start really pray about this. And I'm really tired, honestly, of pastors acting like it's hard to do this. Yeah. It's not. It's not hard to obey God. It's easy because it's the first thing you do. And it's something that we should all do. Because yeah. I want all of us to have blessed finances and experience God's favor in our lives. And what's so cool is it's not just about money, but the blessing that comes in that area, it spills over into other parts of your life. Right. And your entire life spiritually just it just amplifies and snowballs your relationship with God. So I believe that God's working in people's lives. He's going to do something good in your life and speak to you through this message. But here's a testimony I'm going to close with. Uh, someone messaged me this week, and I asked her if I could share it with the church, and she said yes. So I, just, I told her I'd leave her name off of it so it would be private. But she said this, I normally don't make enough to cover my monthly bills, but about three months ago I said, all right, God, I'm all in. I made a commitment to God and to myself that I would not stop tithing and being generous no matter what. I told him, I'm going to do whatever you say, even if it hurts. So I did. I started with tithing. Then I started hearing him say, $10 more, $20 more. I heard him say, give your last 20 to that homeless man. At one point, I was down to $3 in my account and $5 in my pocket. And God said, give your $5 to that woman. I'm like, um, are you sure? It hurt, but I did it. During that time, I'd been looking for a new job because I knew I had to make more to support my two children as a single mom. I also found out that my roommate didn't want to live with me anymore and wanted to break our lease. So now with no money, I had to find somewhere new to live. 
Then three weeks ago, I got approved for a very nice apartment that is income-based, making the rent way more affordable than what I had, but I didn't have the money to move in. So I said, okay, God, this is for you to handle. And I put down the deposit with faith, the rest would come. The day after that, I found out that I got a new job making $11 per hour more. That's $25,000 more per year, praise God. But I still didn't have the money for my apartment. So I started praying, okay, God, I need someone to give me that money. I don't want to take out a loan. I'm trying to fix my credit and pay down debt and save. And a loan would ruin all my progress. And I hate asking for money. I hate asking for help, especially with money. But I heard God tell me I was going to have to ask for help for my family. So I put together this long text explaining how I would pay it all back. But later that day, I heard God whisper, your family is going to give it all to you. And I literally told God, that's crazy. It's a lot of money. <laughs> a couple hours later, I had a message from my brother. We're going to help you, and God put it on our hearts to tell you that you don't have to pay it back. Isn't that cool? She said, I'm starting, to, I'm starting my new job next week and moving into our new apartment. I'll be making substantially more and paying substantially less in bills. And my kids will now have their own rooms for the first time ever. I will be giving a lot more too. I can tell you that much. So all that to say, you can't afford not to tithe. God will equip us with what we need. I believe 100% that when we're faithful with the little we have, God will give us more. I'm so thankful and cannot wait to give more and bless more people. Isn't that awesome? And I love this testimony because, you know, this isn't some rich person talking about giving. This is a single mom who doesn't even have enough to pay her bills now. And it started with the decision, I'm going all in no matter what. And then I'm going to leave it up to God to figure out the rest. She started tithing even though she didn't know how all the bills were going to get paid. And it wasn't just this smooth, easy journey. It was a little bit uh, a bumpy at times. There were some ups and downs. My roommate's going to move out. I've got unexpected concerns. Right? I don't know where it's going to come from. And then things just start falling into place, right? New job, better pay, a, an apartment, a blessing out of nowhere. And, and what's her takeaway from all that? One, yes. God does keep his word. You can't afford not to tithe. And then with this extra margin in her budget, what does she say? Now I'm going to go buy Gucci person. No, she says, now I can give even more and bless even more people. That's exactly what we read about. It's exactly what we read in God's word. And I, can, I get messages like this all the time. And that's why I love preaching sermons like this, because I'm excited for people who are going to experience this for this, the first time in their own lives. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. You have been so good to us and faithful to us. You have provided for the needs that we didn't even know we had. You provided before we even knew we had a need. Lord, you brought some people here to this service tonight to be encouraged and challenged because you love them and you want to do something good and new in their lives. And I pray that those who are already tithing would be encouraged and, and continuing in that and that those who maybe need to start tithing would be challenged and encouraged to trust you. God, because we know you keep your promises, you're faithful, and what you've done before, you will do again. We believe that we're going to see it in our lifetime. We believe we're going to see your goodness 
this again in our church and that you're going to produce a great harvest of generosity in us. So build our faith, Lord, and develop a harvest of generosity in your people so that we can be a blessing to even more people. We praise you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name.